Good morning again. Turn your Bibles to Luke 21. And as you're turning there, let me again uh, welcome you all. It's uh, really fun to see so many people spread out throughout our campus. Uh, You're just like me when I go to the beach with my family. Uh, You figured out uh, where the shade is. And it's great, great to see you all under the shade and in the trees and surrounding area from here all the way across to here. Also, welcome again to those who are live streaming. We're glad you're able to join us in this way and pray that God would continue to bless us as we uh, gather uh, in person and through live stream as well. Uh, just a reminder, we're going to return to our second Sunday in the month celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so next Sunday, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Let me encourage you to take this week again to prepare your hearts for that celebration of the body and blood of Christ as the body of Christ redeemed by him. So next Sunday, we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. This morning, we'll be looking at Matthew, excuse me, at Luke chapter 21, verses 37 through 21 uh, through 22, verse 6. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 21, verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, who is a number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that by your spirit you would drive your word deep into our hearts May it make a profound impact upon our lives. And may your grace grip us even further. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. March 15th, better known as the Ides of March, marked the first half of the first month of the year of the Roman calendar. But in 44 B.C., it also marked one of history's most notorious betrayals and political assassinations. The assassination of Julius Caesar and the betrayal of his friend Brutus. Despite being one of his closest friends, he conspired with several disgruntled Roman senators to put him to death. That betrayal and that assassination has been marked in our minds and indelibly marked in our culture through Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. And it was in that play we hear those words resounding, et tu brute, as they went on to stab Julius Caesar 23 times. You know, there's something about accounts of betrayal and inside jobs and conspiracies that are intriguing but they're also tragic. They, they make for wonderful storytelling and entertaining movies, but they're less appreciative in real life. But when we think of stories of betrayal, certainly this is one that comes to mind, Julius Caesar and Brutus, but one that eclipses all stories of betrayal 
is what we've just read of and preparing to see happen later in Luke's gospel, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Could there have ever been a story of betrayal that would even come close to rivaling the betrayal of the innocent Son of God by someone who was so close to Him? The word betrayal is a catchword in this chapter. It appears in verses 4, 6, 21, 22, and 48. And it casts a shadow over the entire chapter 22 of Luke. Judas' betrayal, though, was a part of a bigger plot, a Passover plot to conspire against Jesus. And in this Passover plot, we're going to see the conspiracy of the religious leaders, the co-conspiracy of Judas and Satan, and the counter-conspiracy of God himself. First, as we look at this conspiracy of the religious leaders, we've seen in Luke's gospel for the past several weeks in Jesus' ministry this heightened hatred of him among the leaders. He has actually made the temple his pulpit when day after day he's teaching in the temple, and people are hanging on every word. And throughout his ministry, the religious leaders heard him speak, and they became jealous of him and angry with him. There was a hatred, and on this holy week, the hatred is intensified. As Jesus taught, their self-righteousness was revealed. Their, their hearts were exposed as being full of hypocrisy, and they hated him all the more for it. And so they began to plot against him. They sought to discredit him and discredit his miracles by claiming that they were done by demonic powers. They fabricated stories of him wanting to create an insurrection and destroy the temple. They trumped up false charges, saying that he broke the Sabbath and was teaching others to do the same. They tried to trick him and trap him in every word of his teaching, but all to no avail. And so now his popularity is beginning to swell. He's teaching in the synagogues. People are hanging on every word. And, and just around the corner are thousands upon thousands, literally hundreds of thousands, who will ascend up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And they just couldn't, the religious leaders just couldn't afford Jesus to gain more popularity with the thousands and thousands and thousands who will be coming to the city. And so they plotted to silence the Savior forever. It was a murderous conspiracy. But there was a problem. Jesus was gaining popularity. And the religious leaders were afraid that if they caught him in public, if they imprisoned him, that there would be an insurrection. And then there was even fear that that insurrection might catch the eye of Rome and they feared the wrath of the Roman emperor. And so they needed help. They needed an inside job on their conspiracy and thus enters Judas and Satan enters him. And so the text moves from the conspiracy of the religious leaders to the co-conspiracy of Judas and of Satan. Often in a conspiracy, what's needed is an inside job and an inside man. And they found this in Judas Iscariot. He was the perfect patsy. He was in the inner circle. He was literally one of the 12 handpicked by Jesus. He had the privilege of living in close proximity with Jesus, 
of observing his ministry and his miracles for three years now. He had been entrusted, brought into the inner circle, and entrusted by Jesus as the treasurer, the one who held and looked after the money bag. And evidently, it was Judas sitting in a place of honor when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. We know that John was seated on his right, but Judas very possibly was on his left because he was seated close enough to dip his bread in Jesus' bowl. He was brought into the inner circle in close proximity to the Savior. And so here's this trusted man who's of the twelve. And certainly Jesus experienced the truism of the closer the relationship, the deep, deeper and more searing the pain of betrayal. But what went wrong? What, what could have possibly led Judas to such a betrayal? Could it have been his disappointment thinking that Jesus was coming in with military power and was going to overthrow Rome and free Israel? Could it have been that he longed for the popularity to be at Jesus' side and to gain that notoriety along with him? Possibly. But the text gives us a hint In verse 5, when he agreed to the conspiracy, he went to the religious leaders and it said, and they were glad to give him money. Could it be that it was his love of money that drove him? You see, less than a week earlier, Jesus was in the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And it was at that scene in that setting where Mary in gratitude, anointed Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. And Judas interrupted and said, this this perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. But John tells us his real motive. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself. You know, I think the Apostle Paul's words are daunting and haunting with the background of Judas' betrayal. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money the love of materialism, the love of a comfort and ease of life has seduced many a soul to the betrayal of Christ. Oh, it may not be a betrayal as dramatic as that of Judas Iscariot, but nevertheless, it is a betrayal of Jesus to to love something more than him that drives us away from him rather than draws us to him. Think of the rich fool who hoarded all of his possessions for his own personal peace and affluence. Think of the rich young ruler, who, because of the love of money, had no passion to pursue Jesus. For the love of money, these men forfeited their souls and the hope of eternal life. Think of the person today whose life is wrapped up in the pursuit of the American dream, consumed by the cares of this life and the pleasures and comforts of this world, all to the neglect of the Savior, all 
to, to spiritual mediocrity that often marks the life rather than a passion and a burning for the things of Christ because hearts are burning for something elsewhere. Phil Riken asks the question, when are we in danger of betraying our Lord? When we spend more time thinking about what we do not have than praising God for what we do have. You see, a covetous, discontent heart is but a portal to our hearts of a betrayal of Christ. Paul warned of the love of money, of materialism. Judas displayed where it can lead. It can make us susceptible to all kinds of evil. And so Jesus again asks us the question, where's your heart? Where's my heart? Where's the treasure of our hearts? What is it that we passionately pursue day after day? What are my hopes and dreams and aspirations? What are your hopes and dreams and aspirations? Are they the comforts of life or the glory, the burning glory of Christ? But you notice in our text, Judas did not act alone. Verse 3 tells us Satan entered him. In John's account, he tells us Satan entered him when he was actually dipping the bread in Jesus' bowl. Certainly that should serve as a warning. There are a couple of warnings here for the believer. First, it's possible to be in close proximity to Christ to be in the inner circle of his people, to actively participate in his ministries, to celebrate the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I mean, Judas is right there when Jesus institutes the Supper. It's possible to do all of these things and to remain far from Christ. And the warning is this, Jesus is reminding church people, not the people on the outside who could care less about Christ and give a rip about the things of God. He's saying these are people within the church. It's possible, he says, to look at Judas and to, to be unregenerate, to participate in church activities. We'll see how long that takes. And to do so. For only self and personal gain. You know, this, quite frankly, is one of the dangers of the prosperity gospel today. It supports the self-serving interests of unregenerate Judases of the day. Judas serves as a warning. It's possible to, to be close to the kingdom, but far from the king. But there's a second warning here that serves as a reminder that as Satan entered Judas, that he didn't make him do things by force. These were things that Judas wanted to do. When Satan entered Judas, he didn't force him to do what he didn't want to do. Judas' love of money, possible desire for power and prestige, made him a most willing and vulnerable vessel of the evil one. Verse 6 tells us he wasn't forced. He consented. He was agreeable to. He was 
willing to do what his twisted heart wanted to do. And again, this can be a warning for believers. Although we cannot be possessed by the evil one as Judas was, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And while we cannot be possessed by the evil one, nevertheless, we can be greatly influenced by him. The idols of our hearts may reduce us to vulnerable victims. It it opens portals to our hearts that cause us to easily succumb to the seductions and influences of the evil one. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, Screwtape, representing Satan, is instructing the younger demon, Wormwood, in the ways to tempt and to try his targeted Christian. And at one point, Screwtape says this, We want very much to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement. For the enemy, that is God, will not be used as a convenience. Like Judas, seeing Jesus as a means to a selfish end, seeing Jesus as a means to gain, seeing Jesus as an opportunity to experience peace and comfort and the pleasures of this world is indeed a betrayal of him, a misuse of him. And so we have to ask ourselves the questions, in what ways have we left our hearts open to the influences of Satan himself? Is it a love of money or of materialism or of power? Is it the approval of others and a sense of significance in our own accomplishments? Is it thinking that loving Jesus now means he owes me? We might not ever say it that way, but there's this insidious thought in the back of my mind, in the motives of my heart, that because I've served you, because I've demonstrated a love for you, because I've gathered with your people, that somehow, Jesus, you owe me. And that opens our hearts to the influences of the evil one. To betray Jesus, maybe not in dramatic fashion, but in subtle sense of using the Son of God for personal gain. James reminds us, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But for unregenerate Judas, there was no resisting, and so there was no fleeing on Satan's part, rather Satan entered him, and he became a willing slave to Satan's schemes. Their co-conspiracy now was well underway. We have the conspiracy of the religious leaders. We have the co-conspiracy of Judas, influenced and driven by Satan. But now we also see something else in this passage. We see the co-conspiracy, we see the conspiracy But now we see the sovereignty working behind the scenes and the counter-conspiracy of God himself. While the chief priests and scribes, along with Judas and Satan, were busy at work in this murderous Passover plot, God 
was at work. Did you see his hand behind the scenes? Do you understand what God is doing even through the conspiracy and the co-conspiracy? Those conspiracies were simply setting the stage for the work of God, for the great counter-conspiracy of the Almighty. In fact, he had been planning to do this all along. Our minds can race back all the way to the garden. And there in the garden, as God was pronouncing the curse upon Satan, we read these words, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is what theologians refer to as the pre-evangelistic passage of the Old Testament. For in that curse pronounced upon Satan, we see in vivid terms the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is saying in that curse to Satan that there will be one in redemptive history who will arise from the seed of the woman. And though you may mortally wound him in the striking of his heel, in that mortal wounding, he will crush your head. And there's a picture of the cross. As Christ died upon the cross, as he was mortally wounded, taking upon himself the guilt of our sin, in that action of the cross, he crushed the head of Satan. He overcame his power, the powers of death and sin and hell itself. All for our sakes. Here is Christ prophesied in the garden. But we can go back even beyond the garden to see this counter conspiracy. We can go back into eternity past. In which the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit said there are people that we are going to redeem out of the vast numbers of fallen humanity. And in that eternal covenant between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Father said, I will devise the plan of salvation that will involve the death of my Son. And the Son willingly took that assignment upon Himself in obedience to the Father, in submission to the Father, and said, yes, I will go and I will give my life as a ransom for many. And then the Holy Spirit sent to apply that good news of the gospel to our hearts and our lives. This is the eternal covenant that the Father, Son, and Spirit made, the eternal covenant in the blood of Christ. So we can trace back to the garden God's intent. We can trace back into eternity past. Jesus, in our very text this morning, quotes from Psalm 41. And he applies it to Judas. Listen again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You know, Jesus' enemies thought they had him in this conspiracy in this counter-conspiracy. But there was a greater counter-conspiracy of the Almighty in motion. Later in the book of Acts, Peter tells us of this counter-conspiracy of God. We read in chapter 2, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But... God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible to keep death its hold on him. Did you hear that? 
the counter-conspiracy of the Almighty, but God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. His counter-conspiracy began with eternity, the eternal covenant in eternity past. He was determined to redeem a people for himself. And all hell itself could not and will not thwart the redeeming plan of God. And so ironically, on this week, the Lamb of God was sacrificed on this Passover week. And we also have the privilege at the end of redemptive history to join in the victory that Christ accomplished through that Passover plot. We have the privilege, as Paul said to the Romans in his conclusion, that one day the God of peace will soon crush Satan under, listen, your feet. And so the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All of this, the conspiracy, the co-conspiracy, were nothing but setting the stage for the counter-conspiracy of God. Phil Reichen, to quote him again, said this, While Satan was conspiring against the Son of God, God was operating his counter-conspiracy that would crush Satan and bring salvation to all people. This was the real Passover plot. Not Satan's wicked scheme to put Jesus to death in Jerusalem during Passover, but the eternal plan of the Father and the Son and the Spirit to crush Satan through the crucifixion of Christ. You see, the reality of our salvation being the result of the counter-conspiracy of God should encourage us and bring great comfort to us as his children, to those who place their faith and trust in Christ. You see, while we may experience trials and tribulations and temptations, while Satan continues to work his diabolical schemes against us and against the church, nevertheless, God's redeeming purposes for you and for his church will always prevail. Think of how Joseph experienced this while he stood, took a particular place in redemptive history, but how he experienced this personally in his own life. He was betrayed by his brothers, by those closest to him, yet he was able to twice say to his enemies, you meant it for evil. You, you meant all of this betrayal and, and, and sending me to Egypt and enslaving me for 20 years, and lying to our father, saying that I was dead. You meant all of this. You devised all of this for evil. But God. I think R.C. Sproul says the most beautiful two words in all of Scripture are those words. But God meant it for good, for the saving of many people. And because we serve a God who delights in the counter-conspiracy of the cross, we can say with absolute bedrock confidence, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good according to His purpose. Because we serve a 
God who loves the counter-conspiracy of the cross of Christ, we can also say with the writers and authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, when asked the question, number one, what is your only comfort in life and death? The second paragraph of the answer reads, because Christ has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, listen, all things, all things must work together for my salvation. Oh, my friends, nothing, nothing can alter that. No betrayal of man, no schemes of hell, no conspiracy or co-conspiracies of the enemy, no epidemic, no pandemic can thwart the redeeming, gracious plan of God for His church and for His people. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, neither height nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor rulers of darkness can separate you from our God and His love for us in Christ. So take comfort, be encouraged in the sovereign, saving work of a God who delights in the counter-conspiracy of the cross of Christ. All for your good and all for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that as we look around and it often appears the world is coming unraveled that it seems that we know that behind the scenes, even as displayed in the cross of Christ, we serve and worship a God who delights in his work in redeeming history. We thank you that we serve a God who delights in the counter-conspiracy of the cross and that for our good and your glory, all of the betrayal was but setting the stage that on that Passover week, the Lamb of God himself will be slaughtered and slain for your beloved. For this we give you thanks we give you praise and we pray that in the confusion of life that we would never forget that our God is sovereign and that all things, including the cross and especially the cross, have worked together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose and for your glory. And so with the apostles, we join our voices in and delighting in the counter-conspiracy of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen.